Welcome to another episode of Tell Me More. We have a conversation about truth uh, that kind of turns into a conversation about some of the currents that we're experiencing as Christianity intersects our culture between the He Gets Us campaign and the Asbury revival. Uh, So as you listen, I hope you'll listen with an open mind and an open heart and consider what God is up to in our world. Welcome to Tell Me More. My name is Luke Stair, and I'm back with Dr. Wiles. We are here talking about the truth, the whole truth, and nothing, nothing but the truth. But the truth, right? <laughs> it was it was quite the sermon yesterday. We mm-hmm. you covered a lot of ground, um, just on a whole host of issues, <laughs> right. uh, on what it means that Jesus is the truth, mm-hmm. that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. Um, so. What are, what are you thinking in the wake of Sunday? <laughs> what's on your mind? Well, I, I guess I would say um, I, I love uh, that page in my Bible, John 14. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love how Jesus can state things so clearly, and yet it's uh, liberating. Mm. And so, you know, when you look at that statement, I'm the way and rules out all other ways. And I think that's going to be corroborated with the rest of this gospel. You get to the Garden of Gethsemane and it's an agonizing story in John's gospel where he, you know, Jesus says, Father, if you can remove this cup. Well, what cup mm. is he talking about? It's, I mean, crucifixion, sure, of course, brutal, awful, I mean, physically torturous. But we all know it's theologically, it's way more than that for Jesus. This, right. this is the sins of the world on his shoulders and him experiencing the judgment of God, really, and, and the payment for our sin. And he, even Jesus in his humanity says, can we do it another way? Right. <laughs> you know, is there, is there any other way? I mean, can we? But your will be done. And three times the Father is, no, this is it. And so... That to me contextualizes John fourteen. There is no other way, and so um. But but I find that to be very liberating. It gives me a truth now to measure my life against, and so um, I just I just love the fact that we have these lengthy discourses in John. We've talked before that I've always been more of a Luke fan, and that has to do with my history bent. But the older I've gotten, the more I've deeply appreciated John mm-hmm. and these lengthy discourses from Jesus and these conversations, you know, right. that found in John that aren't found in the other gospels. And, uh, and so this, the, when you think about it, you get to John 13 and you're already, I mean, you're in the last week of the life of Jesus, <laughs> you know, so, right. I mean, you've, you've, you've basically taken three and a half years of his life and compressed it into 12 pages. And not only that, John reaches all the way back into eternity so he goes from in the beginning to the final week of the life of Jesus in 12 chapters, you know, and then, yeah, <laughs> and then you get just this massive amount of attention to the final night in the life of Jesus. And of course, I think John, of course, has had years to reflect on this and he's under the inspiration of the spirit. But I love that I can sit down and just spend some time on these thoughts from Jesus. And uh, John 14 to me is one of those that's life-shaping. It's, it's actually at the very heart of my pastoral theology, the Jesus way. 
because I believe it's more than just the way to heaven. I think it is the way to heaven, but the way to heaven starts here, you know, and so it's the way to live. It's the way to to engage yourself in, in your life. And so the Jesus way shapes everything for me. So it's mm-hmm. one of those definitive pages in the Bible. Right. And and for then Jesus to further clarify it by saying, well, I'm also the life and I'm the truth. Well, that to me, that just accentuates the reality of him being the way. You know, I think I think it's, there's a reason he says way first because Thomas says, well, we don't know the way. So I think Jesus is directly answering that question. Well, I am the way. Um, but he also knew that the way of truth and the way of life is what he brings. And that's what John's already said, in him was life. And, uh, you know, the, or, uh, the light of mankind is in him and that brought us life. And they'll have this, it's interesting to me, I've, I've gone back, I'm doing a little study right now. Every time the word truth is used in John's gospel mm, or, or truly, truly, you know, whatever he has. I'm, to be honest with you, I've never even noticed it. You know, how many times have I read John? But now I that just, you say it, I think about all of the... <laughs> I, just I really hadn't thought about it that much, to be honest with you. But I'm doing that right now, and it's fascinating to me. And um, I mean, even in the conversation with Pilate, Pilate said, what is truth? <laughs> you know, what a great question. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's a question people have not stopped asking. Yes, yes. And so, um, so yeah, it, it, it's something that's just captured my attention right now. And so, um, so really yesterday, even though yesterday was the summary final message in this series, Why Does Anything Matter? It actually is the jumpstart to this next series of your story, Why Does It Matter? And the whole journey we're going to have for Easter as we just read through John's gospel. So that's what we're about to do. You know, it's just sit down and read through the whole thing and uh, and let it speak to us. And I'm going to challenge our people to kind of climb inside of it you mm. know, when you're reading John and to try to imagine. And, and I think The Chosen has actually helped me with that. Because, you know, I'll, I think we all have in our imaginations how we think things played out. You know, my son, Josiah, he's an avid reader. And I can remember when he was a boy, um, I mean, he read Tolkien and he read Lewis. He, he was just that kid, you know, that would yeah. just, just say, Dad, let's talk about The Hobbit. And I'm thinking, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, so the very first um, movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the older one, I think they've they've made some really good ones, but there was one we took him to see. And so and he's a boy, you know. Well, he's read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We get in the car to go home, and I said, what'd you think? He said, ah, it was just really disappointing. And I said, I, I mean, I, I thought it was pretty good. And he said, Dad, Aslan is so much more fierce than in that movie. In my mind, mm. he's the king. And I thought, well, there you go. And his imagination was so much better than what they were able to portray. Well... So when I first started watching The Chosen, it really challenged me. Uh, maybe some of the people listening have watched it, but what it, one of the ways it challenged me was it, it caused me to rethink and reimagine. Okay, how did how did this how did it really play out? You know, like someone pointed out to me when they said, "Well, you know, when Peter has this huge catch of fish, um, he uses it to pay his taxes off to the Romans." Well, that's ridiculous. That's not in the Bible. I said, "Well, thought about that. True." But I've been in West Africa enough and watched fishermen, and I can promise you that no fisherman would throw away all those fish. Right. They did something <laughs> with it. I, I sold it, is what I was saying. Right. <laughs> so, okay, I don't know that he used it to pay his taxes, but it just it, it invigorated my imagination. And so probably one of the ones that, that really hit me so far in The Chosen 
was the interchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, mm. where they're sitting at this kind of table, if you will, and uh, and the the conversation was so intimate, and and so um, so what I'm hoping to do as we make our way through John is beyond this sermon, but is to invite our people into those conversations. I wonder what it was like, and what if you had been sitting by that fire that night and you recognized Nicodemus, you know, and wondered. What is he doing here? Yeah, you know? and uh, and you might even think, well, I need to have one of those conversations mm. with Jesus, but I feel like I want to come at night because I don't want anybody knowing. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what I mean? What do you have some of that? Or or um, I've done so many weddings, Luke, as a pastor. I I know a desperate mama when I see one. Okay, and it's happened on more than one occasion. Pick pick something. There's so many things. You know, one one day I was doing a wedding in the. The groom lost the rings, and he and he comes in. Well, he was close to the mother of the bride, and he just told her, "I've messed up. I've looked everywhere. I can't find the rings." Well, she comes running to me, you know, and it's about thirty minutes before the wedding's going to start. And she said, "We don't have any rings," and I said, "Okay." I said, "Well, you don't you don't have to have rings to get married." Well, these rings belong to their family. They weren't just mm-hmm. rings they had gone and purchased. These were their family rings. Well, she is in a panic. Well, I, it's not like I'm not Jesus. I couldn't bring rings out of water. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. But my point is, I understand the desperate feeling in that moment because it wasn't like we had six weeks to go figure this out. We had 30 minutes. It's not a lot of time to get a ring. Right. And so I think about Mary coming to Jesus and saying, you know what? These people are out of wine. And look at all these people. Everybody's here, you know, and guess what? Everybody's expecting a party. Right. <laughs> and these, these folks are panicked. And you need to do something. It's a fascinating exchange between Mary and Jesus, but it reminds me that sometimes you're in a situation where you you may feel pretty desperate. So I'm I'm wanting to help our people, myself included, climb in this gospel a little bit and just walk with these folks who actually met Jesus. So anyway, so John 14 is one of those pages where you're sitting there and it's the final. I mean, t- just imagine if you re- reflect on it later. And somebody says, well, weren't you with Jesus the night before he died? Yeah. Well, what did he talk about? Oh, my goodness. What did he talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you what he talked about. I mean, you just got so much that he talked about. And so, um, so yeah, I I was drawn to it yesterday. The whole idea of truth. um, And to me, as I shared Sunday morning, truth is a fascinating subject to me. Um, We depend on it, and yet somehow or another, we can separate it from reality and have this abstract conversation about it, which I get that. But at the end of the day, we all depend on it. Yes. Whether we admit it or not, we do. Um, and so, in fact, um, yesterday, one of our church members was telling me a story about a friend of theirs that spoke at a, at a graduation. And they were actually doing the prayer at the beginning of the graduation, and they just thanked the Lord for truth, real, absolute truth that you can build your life on. And then the speaker who was speaking at the graduation ceremony said, I'm sorry, but I can't help but but mention this. I just listened to the prayer of this chaplain, and, you know, his prayer basically conflicts with what I believe. He's This, this man's the president of university, and he said, I just don't believe in absolute truth anymore. And he said, with all due respect, chaplain, you know, thank you for your prayer. But I would like to just say there is no such thing. Well, when I heard that story, once again, I thought to myself, what a bold statement because you're absolutely declaring a truth that there is right. no absolute truth. There's <laughs> so, a deep irony in that. Yeah, it really is. So 
Anyway, <clears throat> so there are all kind of tangents from there, obviously, as we went on Sunday morning. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, a lot about how we talk about how we depend on truth, but we forget how much life starts to sting when we live against truth mm-hmm. um, and the difficulty and the hardship that it brings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, yes. But, you you know, you like, for example, um, if, if, if there's something wrong with you physically— you know how many times have we we've just heard? Maybe it's hyperbolic, but I mean, for a, a patient to say, "Doc, just tell me the truth." Right. Just tell me what's wrong. Go ahead and just tell me. You know, don't don't beat around the bush. Sometimes truth is just really important. <laughs> you know, just tell me what's wrong with me. Well, physicians they they deal in the realm of truth. You know, they right. have to. You know, or or they can't they can't help. Um, and I think we should not be afraid of it, is what I would say. I agree with you. I think it stings. I don't always like it. You know, <laughs> I'll admit that. Um, I'll never forget hearing this uh, interview with when when we were in this conflict with Iraq and uh, our our troops were shutting down the airport and had actually sent a message to Saddam Hussein, the airport's going to be closed at such and such a time. And supposedly he had this right-hand man, chief of staff guy, that always just gave in to Saddam Hussein. And so Hussein said something like, well, they say they're going to close the airport at such a time. Yes. And he said, well, what time is it? And the guy says, well, what time would you like it to be, Your Majesty? <laughs> well, that right there, you know, you, you can't create your own truth like that. You know, there is reality there. And so I'm just reminded of that. And as hard as it is sometimes, and as challenging it is as it is for me sometimes to have to deal with it, I'm still better off in the long run. Yeah. You know, if I'll embrace it and accept it. It may be it may be hard for a little while. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> yeah. And because um, and we even say it's even in our parlance, Luke, you think about it, you, you somebody we talking to, you ask them a question. They'll say, what do you, I mean, you want me to tell you the truth? What, what I really believe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's important to acknowledge the reality of it. Jesus certainly did. Um, and I think he embodied it, personified it. Um, but he was a purveyor of it though. And that's goes back to my point a while ago. I'm just looking through the gospel of John and look at every time you find that word. Yeah. It's often in John, you know, so. Yeah. And I think, too, not to get too deep into philosophy or any of these things, but in Western culture, we've lived with this divide for a long time because I think no one is re- – well, that's not true. People do contest scientific truth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah, but, just life yeah. now. Um, but historically, in mm-hmm. the development of philosophy, there comes a point with this guy named Immanuel Kant, and mm-hmm. he – basically posits this divide between truth. So there's truth that's public and knowable, and that would be the things of science. So we can discover these things, we can pursue truth. But then there's this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we can't really say if it's true or not. Right. And that's spiritual things, it's moral things. And he puts this divide. And for for all of us, Christian and non-Christian, a lot of us live with this kind of divide in our minds mm-hmm. of... Mm-hmm. I can believe spiritual things, but that doesn't mean they're true for everyone, mm-hmm. Where, whereas these scientific things are evident mm-hmm. and true for everyone. For everyone that's right. Um, and so all of us, Christian and non-Christian, live with that. There's a reason we feel uncomfortable when we try to assert 
public truth about who Jesus is. It's <laughs> because right. we're going against the grain of the philosophy that's been ingrained mm-hmm. in us. Mm-hmm. That was a very redundant way to say that. Yeah. But, but, it's the tr- but it's the truth. J- just like this, uh, I mentioned Sunday morning, this campaign he gets us. Well, what, what do you do with that testimony that's underneath he gets us? Now, the, you know, the veneer, the opening of presenting Jesus as someone who understands us, well, that was kind of the attractive quality of those commercials. And they're not just in the Super Bowl. They're, I've seen them in other They're on the internet. They're yeah, at I've seen them. Cowboy Stadium yeah. there. So, um, but, but at the heart of it, though, it's an exclusive claim. And so what do you do with that? Well, one of the things you can do with it is attack the people that are making that claim by trying to show that they're fallible people and and they have some type of an agenda, you know. So I think that's been one response. That's what I would say about AOC, the Congresswoman. I think she was saying I, I don't know her, so I don't I don't think she was criticizing Jesus, you know, or even a message about Jesus. I think that's she's the, actually Catholic. Yeah. So I think she was saying, well look who's doing this. The, the, these this is an agenda driven, a politically motivated group of people. Um I get that. Um, but it just reminded me of just how hard it is to do this in this culture. <laughs> right. Because people go straight to that kind of thing. And motive is the most difficult thing to discern if you think about it. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> because. <laughs> We're not even good at discerning our own I was motives. I just say that's one of the challenges, isn't it? And uh, But I would tell you, I, sure. So when I first read her criticism, it's not that I was singling her out necessarily in my sermon. I just wanted to point out how how hard this is to do. We talk, we're talking about apologetics. Well, trying to represent our faith in a way that's articulate and ultimately appealing, compelling, it's challenging. You know? It is. So, um, And there are even Christians who criticize this campaign, and mm-hmm. I, I'll confess that I'm critical of aspects of it. Yeah, yeah it's uh, not perfect. There's been a quote that's convicted me, and it's from D.L. Moody, and it's D.L. Moody says, you may not like my methods of evangelism. Sometimes I don't even like my methods of evangelism. But I certainly don't like your method of not doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's been one piece in my mind from D.L. Right. Moody. That's right. Me, and I thought the same thing. Like when I first saw it, I was a little bit suspect because I was like, okay, he gets us. God, there's so many things I could say about Jesus. But it's grown on me, and and it is true. He gets us. He's one of us. Right. <laughs> he lived a human life. And so um, I'm trying to be respectful and thoughtful. I don't have to agree with every bit of it. I would say the same is true with this outbreak, outpouring of God's Spirit at Asbury. Right. Okay? I'm I'm not a Wesleyan. Now, I've been influenced by Wesleyan theology. Of course I have. I'm a great fan of John Wesley. Who? What evangelical Christian is not a fan of John right. Wesley? I mean, seriously. <laughs> we owe so much to him. <laughs> yes, and uh, I'm grateful for him. And the impact the Wesleyan tradition has had on on the broader Christian family, absolutely. But I'm sure that if I were to peel every layer and really do a lot of research on everybody teaching at Asbury, I'm a Baptist. I can promise you there'd be some points of departure. I know that, but that's not the point of what this is. That's that's not what's happening there. I'm not I'm not doing a uh, Craig Keener's a theologian there at at at, uh, at the seminary across the street. Well, he's written, he's written these massive volumes on the Gospel of John. He, he's forgotten more Greek than I'll ever know in my life. You know what I mean? He has One done of those more people. study of first century Israel and Palestine 
in, in understanding social and cultural settings. He's written up this, this two-volume commentary helping us understand the social historical context in which the gospel is birthed. Brilliant guy. But he's Wesleyan, so there are some things about him. I, he and I would part ways occasionally theologically. But he's personally witnessing and experiencing this outpouring, and he's written about it, and it's powerful. Mm. You know, here's this brilliant theologian, scholar, and uh, you would think he would have the ability to kind of detach himself a little bit, and but he's been drawn in, you know, and and so when I look at it, sure, I might be able to find some points that I might critique, but the but the overwhelming sense of what I have as I'm watching it is that this is the movement of God. And it's affecting the lives of thousands of people, you know, thousands. Yes. I guess you might even say millions, you know. when you, We don't know yeah. what the impact will be. Yeah. I mean, like I read one uh, one report on one, there was one TikTok of, and I forgot what it was about that revival or, or, or awakening, whatever you want to word you want to use to describe it, that was in this TikTok and it's had 55 million views, Okay. Well, I don't. That's I don't, substantial. Yeah, I don't even do TikTok. I don't even know how to get TikTok. Okay, I just get it when my <laughs> my kids send me to watch something. But that was on uh, a Facebook post. I watched it, and when I looked at it, it said fifty five million views. Wow. I mean, <laughs> there's a hunger for something, right? And it appears to me to be outpouring of God. And I, what I've watched, I've listened to some folks I trust, um, and so. But I understand there's there's always controversy associated with it all. But I think in the long run, it's when you'll make the judgment. So I arrived at Southwestern Seminary in the early 80s. Well, there had been a revival at Asbury Seminary across the street from the university, um, 1970. Well, <clears throat> so there were some professors at Southwestern Seminary in the 60s that were burdened by what was happening in front of them. My goodness. Um, I think sometimes we forget how traumatic the 60s were in America. You mm. know, the, 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 the nation was on fire. You know, college campuses were on fire. Um, cities had been burning, riots in the streets. Uh, there had been, I mean, you think about it, Luke, the president of the United States was murdered publicly. It's only happened twice. Yeah. Think about that. And then his brother was murdered publicly. And then Martin Luther King was murdered publicly. I mean, th think about that, how shocking that was to to our society, as it should be, <laughs> you know? Okay. Well, I was just a little kid, but if you think, I don't remember John Kennedy being killed, but I do remember Robert Kennedy being killed. Mm -hmm. And I certainly remember Martin Luther King being killed. Okay. Well, just imagine, and, and at the time, um, seminary growth was diminishing. Um, professors were concerned. Well, there were a group of professors at Southwestern that were burdened, one of them in particular, who said he had a certain hard edge to him. And he, he had a, he had a, just a, um, he said he wanted to be known for being hard. You know, he, he didn't want anybody thinking they could take his classes because he was in an area in the missions area where it would have been very easy to think, well, that's an easy A, you know, I'll take this. And well, he made it to where it was anything but that, <clears throat> and he gloried in it, actually. And he said God began to convict him, and he began to pray, and he this group of professors began to pray that God would send some kind of movement to that campus. 
that would counteract what they felt like they were watching all around them and just the demoralizing effects. Well, <clears throat> this revival breaks out at Asbury. So when they heard about it, they waited a little bit. Well, a couple of them went over to Kentucky to just see it. Well, then they brought those students, some students there, to chapel at Southwestern. Well, in that chapel meeting, a revival broke out at Southwestern. And people started repenting and confessing their sins. This professor was one of them. And he said it was really hard for him to go forward with a group of students mm -hmm. and kneel at the front of a chapel you know, when he had felt like he had a certain reputation, but he finally decided, I can't, I can't help it. Well, it completely changed him. And he realized that God had called him to that seminary for a different reason, to just be a hard professor that you you were, um, you feared. But he was called to help you learn how to form yourself spiritually with God's intervention in your life. That's what he ended up teaching. I meet him years later. Very first thing he tells us, the very first class, he says, I need to tell you all a story about my transformation. And he tells us this story of what happened to him. And and like I said, I'm getting there years later. Okay. So I think about the effect of the Asbury Revival 1970 actually personally impacted me because that professor became one of my most trusted confidants and his whole life was changed by that revival. So what so ten years from now, what stories will we will we be telling about this one? That that's kind of where I'm focusing a little bit, you know. Thinking this, if this is a movement of God, it's going to have long, far-reaching effects, you know. So, and I'm and I'm I'm hopeful, you know. And right now, I'm not going to criticize it. Yeah, and I think culturally, we're at a place where criticism is the easy move. Oh my goodness, Lord help us. Um, it is so easy to sling criticism, and we've seen it directed at this. He gets us campaign, mm -hmm. which. Whether you like it or not, mm -hmm. we're having a national conversation about Jesus in a way that we haven't had mm -hmm. in, in a very long time. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if in my lifetime. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Probably in your lifetime. Maybe never. Um, so whether we like it or not, there's a tremendous opportunity to talk about Jesus. If you like the campaign, if you don't like the campaign, mm -hmm. you have an opening. Mm -hmm. um, the same with this revival. Mm -hmm. And so as I've been thinking about these trends and currents in our culture, one of the things that has come to mind is actually a quote from a Pixar movie, mm -hmm. um, Ratatouille. It's you're, about You're such a scholar. Luke. Such a you scholar. Yes, I watch movies yes. with preschoolers. Yes, um, absolutely. This is a good quote. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the movie, it's about a rat who cooks. That's about to say. <laughs> Even I've seen it. <laughs> um, my grandchildren. But this quote comes at the end from a food critic, and it's about criticism. And this critic says... In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, mm. which is fun to write and to read. But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. Mm. Yeah. But there are times when a critic truly risks something, and that is in the discovery and the defense of the new. The world is often unkind to new talent, new creations. The new needs friends, mm. which I'm. That's all. I love that. Good quote. Yeah. Um, the new need for it needs friends. I love that. So as you think about this yeah. campaign mm -hmm. and the Hasbury revival, mm -hmm. you may not endorse everything about That's either right. one of those things. Mm -hmm. But how are you going to not just be a critic that's mm -hmm. bitter mm -hmm. 
fun to write and to read, but how are you going to seriously engage the work mm-hmm. that God is up to mm-hmm. in these things? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's so easy. Anybody can criticize. My goodness, it's so easy. And, uh, but man, I'm, that, that's why I like the, the, the Teddy Roosevelt's version of Ratatouille. You know, we'll just get, <laughs> get on, get down here in the arena with me and then, and then, you know, sling a little bit of, of mud in here and then you can criticize. But if you're just going to sit out and watch. Well, in the that, peanut gallery. Yeah, that's just that's so easy to do. And, uh, you know, we're, I think about, um, I was watching the president of Asbury last night of the university and, and the president of the seminary has published a really thoughtful take on it all. But, um, but anyway, the president of the university just listened to his tenor last night as he was addressing these students. He was so humble, Luke. He, he just introduced himself with his first name and he said, I work here at the university. And I'm thinking, you don't just work here at the university, okay? You're the president of this university. It'd be like you say, my name is Dennis, yeah. and I, I work at First Baptist. At First Baptist, yeah. And so then he just started talking about how he's trying to respond. He's trying to shepherd. And the appreciation that he expressed <clears throat> about the work of God, about what he saw in the lives of these students. And I thought, well, one of the, one of the signs that I would look for would be humility. You know, and uh, and that's what I heard from him. You know, I thought, you know, and he's in the throes. He's 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 in there working with 18, 19 and 20 year old young adults. That's his life. Well, I want to listen to what he has to say, you know, because that's where he is. And he's surrounded by them and he's trying to somehow um, shape their lives and do it in a way that's Christ like. And that's basically what he said to them. He said, I'm trying to shepherd this. And and so um, it was really fascinating to hear his take and 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 then to hear how people responded. Uh, you and I were talking before we started this podcast. One of the things he said last night was, okay, this has been going on now for a while. So Thursday, this coming Thursday, is the day of collegiate prayer across the nation. Asbury's hosting it, which is fascinating. <laughs> that has been planned a long time ago. And he said, when we finish hosting this on Thursday evening, we're going to return to our normal chapel schedule. And he said, we're not canceling a revival. You can't do that. He said, but we're going to return to our normal chapel schedule, and we're going to help everyone understand that revival and awakening is not tied to a room. It's Mm. the lives that are being changed. He said, so we're going to spread out across this campus, and we're going to live in the wake of what God's done and see what God does with it. Very mature. I loved it. Well, this morning I saw a report on it, and someone's in headlines said President cancels revival at at Asbury, and I thought seriously, criticism <laughs> is easy. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. So I'm I'm hopeful, but I would tell you as as it connected to my sermon Sunday, I think what I would say is I think people are really hungry for for something meaningful, and what's most meaningful is truthful. Mm. So it's connected to truth. At the at the end of the day, so that's why I'm, I'm I believe Jesus spoke to it. I believe He embodied it, and I think that's our job as well. So I think that is a great way to end. Good. <clears throat> well, thank you for listening, everyone, and we will be back next week talking about your story and why it matters.
for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Have a good day. Yeah, work with that.